Is it that time again already? Time is a curious concept. Consistent, except when it's not. Which reminds me of this evening's tale. It comes from Gareth D. Jones. Mr. Jones is from the UK and works with Hazardous Waste, which has so far failed to mutate him into a superhero. He is a father of five who also writes stories and drinks lots of tea. His stories have appeared in 40 publications in 27 languages. It will be read for us by Mr. Vic Mullen. The Long Afternoon of Sir Rupert Moncrief by Gareth D. Jones 1pm The blinding light gave way, as usual, to darkness and blurred vision. Moncrief expected this to clear in a moment or two as it generally did. This time, it stayed dark. The floor beneath his knees was cold stone. He put his hands out to the side and felt bottles and racks, corks and dust. He was in the wine cellar, not blind. He got to his feet and felt his way forward till he reached a stone wall. He turned around and felt his way back until he arrived at another stone wall, this one with a wooden door. Somewhere to the right, he eventually found the switch for the electric lamp. The dim light of the ornamental bulb confirmed his suspicion that the ever-efficient Hammond had locked the wine cellar as he should. He could not open the door from the inside. He banged on the door several times in the hopes that Hammond would be nearby, but there was no reply. The only result was sore fists. Hammond kept a corkscrew on the first shelf near the door, for testing purposes. Moncrief selected a nice Merlot. It had been a long afternoon. He opened the bottle with slightly less finesse than his valet would have managed, looked in vain for a glass, and took a swig from the bottle instead. It was indeed a fine vintage. He sat with his back to the door and swallowed a few more mouthfuls, banged on the door a few more times, downed several more mouthfuls, chuckled at the ludicrous day he was having, finished the bottle, slumped to one side, cried over Letitia. When his fob watch buzzed, he fumbled at it several times before he managed to pull it from his pocket. The finger pointed at the number eight. Two o'clock now, plus eight. His brain had still not come up with the answer of ten o'clock before the light assaulted him again and he slipped forward in time. Two PM Moncrief collapsed onto hands and knees, slid down face first on the soft ground. His head pounded unbearably, and the bright lights took much longer to fade from his vision. He focused on blades of grass inches from his nose. A sheep bayed. He looked up at more grass and a black leg. The sheep munched slowly. It was a few minutes before he could regain his feet, struggling against the crippling flashes of pain that assaulted his brain. He was in a sheep field. That much was evident. A small copse of trees laid to the right. The house was nowhere in sight. He stumbled in the direction he was fairly sure the house was. He could still get to the basement by three and stop the experiment before it started. After a few seconds, he paused. Was that possible? Stopping something 
that he had already experienced. He stumbled on, only able to focus on walking for now. The pain in his head settled into a background throb and the fresh air seemed to be helping. It was a half-hour walk at his slow pace, across two fields, past the trees, into the far end of the formal gardens near the folly, through the rose garden and down the manicured lawns. Thump on the door with the lion's head knocker and lean on the doorframe. Hammond opened the door. I thought you were in the basement workshop, sir. I am, Moncrief staggered inside. Or probably will be. Hammond helped him to the library and he sat heavily at the desk. Hammond, I'm afraid some rather odd things are going to happen this afternoon. Oh, is your aunt visiting again, sir? Possibly, but that's not what I had in mind. He rubbed his brow. I shall fetch something for your head, sir. Moncrief nodded. Wished he hadn't. After his head had settled again, he made his way around the back of the desk and collapsed into his chair. He opened the drawer and stared in satisfaction. His spare workshop key. At last. Hammond returned with cold water and effervescent powders. Moncrief gulped them down. That will be all. Hammond left silently. After three o'clock, he decided, he could safely enter the basement workshop and change the dial to prevent the endless recharging of the chronomulator and the unexpected repeated time jumping of the fob watch. Or should he wait until after four? He pulled out his notebook. Of course, he would still be in the workshop until four. He closed his aching eyes and was startled awake by a buzz from his pocket. He pulled out the fob watch in time to see the finger settle on four. He was going forward to seven o'clock. Time for dinner. The bright light did not quite hurt as much this time. 3pm All scientific advances had historically taken place mid-afternoon. This was probably due to the sustaining effect of afternoon tea, combined with the fact that the scientist in question had worked all day to perfect their technological apparatus and was generally keen to test out his work before dinner. Sir Rupert Moncrief, amateur scientist, tinkerer, baronet of a small yet venerable family, was no exception. Three o'clock seemed like a perfect time to carry out the first practical demonstration of the chronological manipulator he had painstakingly constructed in the basement over the course of the past few years. The old house, set in several acres of adequately tended gardens, spread over five storeys including the basement and contained more rooms than Moncrief knew what to do with. Since the death of his elderly mother, he had reduced the staff one by one until only his valley, Hammond, remained. Perhaps, if he had married, it might have been different. He shrugged off such thoughts, worn and painful as they were, and paced the narrow confines of his basement laboratory. The inside of the solid oak door was stained with soot, the reminder of earlier experiments. Now, the wide, low room was bereft of chemicals and was instead packed with electrical and mechanical equipment of bewildering complexity. Moncrief checked the door was locked and hung the key on a hook. There had been a couple of occasions when Hammond had descended into the laboratory with an afternoon brandy, only to be startled by a sudden flash or crackle from the machinery. The best crystalware could stand no more losses hence the sealed entrance. It took about 20 minutes to activate each power relay, check that all the indicator lamps were either blinking or shining steadily depending on their purpose, and that the paired motors were humming away at the correct speed, gradually building up charge in the chronomulator. This was the most delicate part of the apparatus a vacuum tube suspended between powerful electromagnets, capturing the time essence as it was generated by the chronocatalytic generator. 
Sure that everything was humming and ticking as it should, Moncrief cracked open the valve that allowed the exotic catalyst to make contact with the electrical field. A high-pitched buzzing joined the other sounds as the very stuff of time was artificially created, focused through the brass encased crystal and captured by the chronomulator. This prototype would store only a few hours of directionable time, but Moncrief had already sketched out plans for something much more powerful. Enough, he hoped, to enable him to save his beloved Letitia. From a lockbox built into the stone basement wall, Moncrief retrieved a carved wooden cigar case. It had been his father's, but Moncrief had never been fond of the habit. Smoking the pungent brown cylinders only out of politeness while in company. Now the box held the centrepiece of his creation, a delicately constructed fob watch that was linked via electrosympathetic conditioning to propagate the stored chrono energy onto the wearer. He checked its workings carefully and slipped it into the pocket of his floral waistcoat. The chronomulator was almost at full charge. He altered the reset dial to recharge in an hour, loath to waste time after the first experiment waiting for it to be ready again. On the fob watch, he wound the single hand forward to point at the number one, limiting its uptake of the stored chrono energy to one hour's worth. After the first jump forward, the chronomulator would be ready for him to use again immediately. It was approaching four o'clock, according to the carriage clock on his desk. It had been a family heirloom, but now the face had been removed, an additional finger attached and copper wiring inserted into the back to link it to his machine. He cast another glance over the array of cables, motors and clockwork. He would activate the device on the hour, the better to compare the time difference when he reappeared. He adjusted the clock's additional finger to point exactly at four and pulled down the switch that made the connection. He stood with the chronometer fob watch in one hand, his standard fob watch in the other, watching the seconds tick by, eyes flicking to the carriage clock and back every few seconds. With 30 seconds to go, he put the standard fob watch into his pocket and released the lever on the back of the machinery that opened the chronometer's outlet to the fob watch. The single hand on its ivory face began to waver. Moncrief stared at it, alarmed. It swung forward to two hours and then back to naught and, as the pitch of the chronometer's buzzing increased, the hand began to swing more wildly, up to three hours then four, back to naught, then to minus an hour, then two. Sweat dampened his palms as the last few seconds ticked down. Moncrief tapped the fod watch hard, willing it to settle. The hand oscillated more rapidly. He glanced up at the carriage clock, his mouth dry. Maybe he should postpone the trip. The clock ticked over to four. The fob watch's fingers stopped on five. That would take him forward to nine o'clock. Rather late for dinner. A bright light burst from the fob watch. It was like the light of heavy drapes being opened on a bright sunny morning when one is still laying in bed and one's valley has decided it's time to rise and be about the day's business. The effect was of the world splitting. The light assaulted him, blinded him, battered his brain until befuddled in pain, he fell to his knees and let out a yell of fear and alarm. Four PM The Attic Dust wafted as he scrambled for the door, fighting nausea and disorientation. Maybe he could prevent the first jump. He raced down the attic steps, along the carpeted hallway, down the stairway to the next landing, skidded around the corner and head first into the wall. His eyes blinked open against a pounding headache. I was about to call for the doctor, sir. Hammond's voice, too loud. Where am I? 
I carried you back to your room. I shall fetch another ice pack, sir. Moncrief watched through slitted eyes as Hammond left the room. There was silence, save for the ticking of the mantelpiece clock. He sat up and stared until his eyes focused. Almost five. The fob watch buzzed. He stared even harder to focus on the single finger as it wavered back and forth and settled on minus three again. The blinding light was even more painful this time as he slipped back to two o'clock. Five p.m. The blinding headache, the dizziness and disorientation were nowhere near as bad this time and Moncrief managed not to yell as he fell to his knees on the tiled floor. He shook his head and his vision cleared. He was in the staff dining room, somewhere on the lower floor. He pulled himself up and leaned against the long, scarred table, which, he presumed, saw very little use anymore. A moment later, Hammond appeared, looking somewhat surprised. You came down rather quickly, sir. It was only... One of a handful of times Moncrief had ever gone downstairs, and then only for special occasions. He could not think of a good reason for being downstairs without a long and complex explanation. Ah, Hammond, he said. Can you bring me a brandy just after nine in the rose room? Hammond considered this for a brief second. May I ask why you will be in the rose room? I'm not entirely sure, but I shall most definitely need one. Ah, very good, sir. Hammond stood immobile in the doorway. Will you be needing the ice pack? No, I don't think so. Moncrief headed for the stairs and back up to his own domain. He felt rather weak by the time he was back in the library and his face ached. It would probably come up in a nice bruise. He sat for a few minutes to collect his wits. In the same high back chair that he had vacated moments before. There was no sign of Thwaites' almanac. He checked the mantelpiece clock. A quarter after five. With sudden inspiration, he realised that the book would still be on its shelf. He hunted the numerous shelves that lined two entire walls, unable to recall where it would be. It was not a volume he had ever consulted. Thwaite being renowned for his esoteric opinions. Eventually, he came across it on a very high shelf between several volumes of mechanical histories, also unread. Moncrief retrieved the book and placed it carefully on the desk beside his chair. There was now the matter of gaining access to the locked basement workshop. He circled the desk and opened the drawer, wherein he kept several spare keys to the rear door, wine cellar, and workshop. The workshop key was missing. He rummaged around, checked the other drawer, finally gave in, and rang the bell. Hammond appeared moments later. Have you taken the key to my workshop? Uh, no, sir. I believe you keep it in the desk drawer. Thank you, Hammond. It's obviously not here. I'm going to need an axe. Ah, very good, sir. Moncrief was not sure whether Hammond kept an axe along with the tea service, but his valet did not seem perturbed by the request. He turned to leave. Oh, and Hammond, I'll be dining at seven with a guest. Ah, very good, sir. May I ask who the guest will be? I don't know yet. After the valet had left, Moncrief spent several more minutes searching for the key, then went to his bedroom and searched the drawers there where he kept various assortments of useful bits and bobs. No sign of it. It looked like there was no alternative but to break through the door and stop the machine. It was just on six according to the mantelpiece clock, and enough was enough. A whining noise started in his pocket. The fob watch. He pulled it out in time to see the finger settle on two. The light flashed brilliantly, from the watch's face and he jumped forward to eight o'clock. Six PM Moncrief braced 
for the inevitability painful tumble down the stairs and landed instead on the floor of an outhouse. Nose pressed up against the leg of a workbench. It was dim in the outhouse with shafts of evening light entering around and through the cracks in the door. He pulled himself up and leaned back against the workbench where cleaning products and maintenance tools lay. He snagged his jacket and something, put his hand in grease, sighed. The outhouse door locked from the inside, so he was able to let himself out and onto the drive at the rear of the house. He brushed himself down, took a few breaths of fresh air and walked the short distance to the servant's entrance. He pulled the bell handle and waited. Hammond opened the door presently. Sir? Moncrief said nothing and walked in past his valley into the servant's hall. I was about to bring the axe up, Hammond said. There was no need for you to come down or outside. Moncrief took the axe from the table at the foot of the servant's stairs and went up the grand hall, dripping all the way. Hammond trailed behind. If I might say so, Sir looks rather dishevelled. As Moncrief arrived at the door that led down to his basement workshop, there was a heavy thud at the main door as somebody used the lion's head knocker with great enthusiasm. Moncrief paused while Hammond went to the door. He did not open it wide enough for Moncrief to see out, but spoke in low tones for a moment. He turned and opened the door behind him. Two gentlemen, sir, from the Royal Technological Society. He stepped aside, and the two men in dark woolen suits entered, looking around with nervous curiosity. One had a red face, the other had greasy hair. You! Moncrief barked, indignation quickly boiling over into rage. Sir? Sir Rupert Moncrief raised the axe above his head, as one of his ancestors had done at the Battle of Malloyne, to earn the baronetcy from the king, and he charged across the great hall, an impressive battle call bursting from his lungs. The two visitors turned and fled. Moncrief came to a halt on the front drive and watched the two retreating figures until they disappeared around a tree-lined drive. He went back inside and handed over the axe, which suddenly seemed rather heavy. I shall make a note that the Royal Technological Society is not in your good books, Hammond said. Indeed, Moncrief headed for the stairs. Do you still need the axe, sir? No, I have a better idea. I shall lay out a new suit then, Hammond said. Half an hour later, Moncrief was clean and changed, ready for dinner, though, as Hammond finished tying his dicky bow, he realised that he was not likely to be going to dinner next. Hammond left to finish preparing the dinner, leaving Moncrief to wonder who the guest would actually be. He looked at his notebook from earlier, wishing that he had made more notes during the afternoon. He checked the drawers for the key again, but was not still there. Thwaites' almanac had given him a clue. If only he could remember what time the spare key had been missing. The fob watch buzzed, and he stood quickly, grabbed it from his dressing table, and stared at the face. The finger settled on minus three. Four o'clock was his destination. The bright light came again. 7pm. His head was thudding. It was dark. Moncrief realised that the thudding was the door knocker again. A crack of light appeared, revealing Moncrief's location to be the cloakroom of the Grand Hall. Hammond masked his surprise well as he stepped into the cloakroom bearing a hat and coat. Sir Alec Peterson has arrived, sir. Ah, very good. I have shown him to the drawing room. Thank you, Hammond. He stepped past the valley awkwardly into the light of the Grand Hall and straightened his jacket. It was, in fact, not very good. Sir Alec was Letitia's cousin, her only cousin, her only relative. He had never forgiven Moncrief for her death. He did not care that it was an accident and that Moncrief's grief had debilitated him for months. 
and that it was only his time-travelling project that enabled him to keep going from day to day. Moncrief had been behind the wheel of the steam carriage, and in Sir Alex's mind, he was entirely to blame. Moncrief took several deep breaths as he crossed the Grand Hall, trying to recall who had arranged or agreed to the dinner. The afternoon was such a confusing blur he could not remember whether it was Hammond or himself who had first raised the subject. Sir Alec Peterson stood by the fire, staring into the flames. He turned at Moncrief's arrival and fixed his attention on his host. Tall, slim, hair slicked back, he appeared calm, unlike the last heated meeting. Alec? Rupert, you're looking well. It sounded like a recrimination. I manage. He poured a sherry to match the one Sir Alec already clutched. How's your work? Promising, I think. Moncrief sat in one of the armchairs. Sir Alec joined him, so they were only sat a few feet apart. Good, good. Sir Alec seemed too calm. Polite. Like he wanted something. Yours? Moncrief decided to be polite in return. Sir Alec never discussed his work. Certainly not with his cousin's killer. We've reached a bit of an impasse. Even that was far more than he ever said on the subject before. He leaned forward in his seat. How much do you know about Christological transmission? Only the few snippets that, his voice caught, that Letitia told me. Sir Alec's face darkened, his jaws clenched. After a moment, his features were back under control. The basic theory works perfectly, but only on a small scale. To transmit messages over any distance, we need pure, flawless crystals. We have men working on cultivating artificial crystals to do the job. But if the wars in the colonies taught us anything, it's that we need good communication and we can't afford to wait. Dinner will be ready in five minutes, Hammond announced from the doorway. Um, we should go through, Moncrief said, starting to rise. I did not come for dinner. I thought we were expecting you. He sat back in his chair. No, I did not want to come at all, Sir Alec put down his empty sherry glass, as you probably know. Moncrief smiled thinly. But the two men I sent to talk to you said you chased them off with an axe. Moncrief frowned. I thought it unlikely, but they refused to return, so I was obliged to come and, he paused as if to swallow something distasteful, and ask you myself. What is it you want? Moncrief asked. The Chalinor Diamond. Moncrief almost dropped his sherry glass. Sir Alec went on before he could voice an objection. It's flawless, perfectly clear and massive, almost 100 carats. It's exactly what we need in the centre of the Christological transmitter. He leaned back in his seat. And it would have been Letitia's. This hit Moncrief like a physical blow. Letitia, how she had loved the Chalinor diamond, been awed by its beauty... In Moncrief's eyes, it had merely been a reflection of her paltrytrude. He had told her it would be hers when they married, and she had held it and gazed into its sparkling facets with joy. You cannot have it, he breathed at last. This time, Sir Alec did not control the rage that contorted his face. Cannot have it? He stood swiftly. You took my beloved Letitia, my only family, my friend. You destroyed my family, my life. He raised a fist, seemed to think better of it. One thing you could give me, and it's not even for me, it's for the good of this country. Moncrief stood quietly. It's all I have left of her. It was true. They had not been married. He had none of her possessions. Only memories, only the diamond that allowed him to gaze into its facets and perhaps catch a glimpse of his lost dreams. It was the only way he could see it again. This is not just for me, Sir Alec said. This won't be the last you'll hear from us. He stalked towards the door. I already know. The door slammed behind his departing visitor. Hammond appeared a moment later. 
Is Sir Alec not staying for dinner? Apparently not. He followed Hammond through the dining room and ate his way through a starter of melon balls and parma ham, main course of salmon on crew with asparagus, pomme de terre nouveau and herb butter and seasonable vegetables, followed by chocolate souffle with chantilly cream. He tasted none of it. Our visitors from the Royal Technological Society will be back, he told Hammond as he later cleared away the final dishes. Shall I serve them coffee when they arrive? No, Hammond, be ready to chase them off again. Very good, sir. He carried his tray out of the room. Moncrief felt his pocket for the workshop key, unable to trust his memory as to whether it was there or not. It was. Time to put an end to this. He stood resolutely and went to the top of the basement stairs. Or was it the right this time? He would be in the house between eight and ten o'clock already. If he ended the chronomulator's repetitive output now, he would not be transported at eight o'clock, so he would be here twice. He pulled out his notebook and jotted down some words to this effect, wishing that he had given more thought to the complexities of his objective before he had started the whole process. By the time he had thought his way through numerous convoluted potential paradoxes and walked his way to the desk in the library, there was no time to write them all down. The fob watch buzzed. He snatched it from his pocket, irritated now at the continual interruptions to his life. The single finger wavered back and forth, settled on minus seven. All the way back to one o'clock. Not ideal? but the blinding light gave him no choice. Eight p.m. Gravel dug into Moncrief's knees. It was dark, damp and chilly. He pushed himself to his feet and stared into the darkness. Trees waved their branches gently, dark shadows against a black sky. He was somewhere outside, that much was evident, but where? He turned slowly on the spot. The welcoming lights of his imposing house shone from a hundred yards up the drive. Not lost then. He traipsed along the gravel and hammered with the heavy lion's head knocker. Hammond opened the door a moment later. Sir? May I come in? Of course, sir. I was not aware that you had taken an after-dinner constitutional. I would have fetched your coat. It's fine, Moncrief said, stepping over the threshold into the warm hallway. He shivered. Very good, sir. Hammond stepped ahead to open the door to the drawing room. Moncrief sat down before the fire and Hammond stoked it up. His face ached. After Hammond had left the room, he stood and peered into the baroque mirror above the fireplace. A dark bruise was appearing across his right cheek. He sat again and leaned his head back while he warmed up. The smash of glass startled him from a warm doze. He leaped to his feet and stared around. Two men were stepping carefully through the tall window casements, brushing aside shards of glass held together by lead. It was the same two thugs he had already escaped from. Hello again, Greasy Hair said. They both pulled cautious from their coats. Not so tough without your axe, are you? Greasy Hare slapped his cosh into his hand. Hand over the diamond. Axe? Diamond? Our employer asked politely. Now hand it over. Y your employer? Both men took a step forward, slapping their cautious into their palms noisily. Moncrief sprang from the room. Hammond! He called as he sprinted across the hallway and took the stairs two at a time. The upper landing was in darkness. He picked a door at random and slipped inside, closing the door behind him. There must be something he could use as a weapon, but sadly he could see nothing. He flipped on the light to reveal familiar hand-painted rose wallpaper. A poker stood in the companion set at the fireplace. He took hold of it and slipped back into the hallway. He could hear a struggle downstairs. Hammond. 
He rushed back the way he had come and halfway down the stairs in time to see the intruders running across the grand hall, followed seconds later by Hammond wielding an axe. All three disappeared out through the front door. Moncrief took the stairs two at a time, crossed the grand hall and raced out the front door. The three figures were racing away into the dark and Moncrief followed swiftly, poker at the ready. He stumbled in the dark, slipped on west grass, regained his feet. He heard splashing and seconds later joined Hammond up to his knees in the fish pond. I lost him in the dark, Hammond said. They stood in silence for a few minutes, but there was no sound from their quarry. They waded out of the pond and made for the house. You circle round the back, I'll go to the front. We'll lock both doors behind us. He swapped weapons. Yes, sir. Moncrief watched Hammond disappear around the side of the house, went in the front and bolted the door behind him. The grandfather clock showed almost nine. He headed for the basement stairs, determined to finally break through the door into the workshop. The stone steps were slippery under his wet shoes. The fob watch buzzed. He pulled it from his pocket, saw the oscillating finger settle on minus three, slipped and tumbled into bright light on his way back to six o'clock. Nine PM The cry died in Moncrief's throat as he realized how unmanly it sounded. He blinked his eyes rapidly, trying to regain his sight. He was on his knees on plush hand woven carpet, which was odd as the basement floor was flagstones. The glare gradually diminished and Moncrief realized he was in a bedroom. His first thought was that he must have passed out and been carried there by Hammond, which was embarrassing, but it was not the first time such a service had been performed for him. At least this time it was the result of scientific experimentation rather than irresponsible inebriation. It was not his own room though. It took another moment for him to realise that he was in the Rose guest bedroom, which he had probably not set foot in for several years. The light was on, for no good reason. He checked his fob watch. It was a minute after four. It was dark outside though, which meant it could not be four o'clock. With mounting excitement, he struggled to his feet, braced himself against the bedpost and looked for a clock. There was none, of course. When the last chambermaid had been dismissed, there was nobody left to wind the clocks and Hammond had packed most of them away. He felt rather dizzy and sat on the edge of the bed. He really needed a brandy. There was a gentle knock on the door as Hammond peered in. Ah, you are there, sir. He pushed the door wide and entered, carrying a brandy on a silver tray. What the devil happened to you? Moncrief asked as he took the proffered snifter. He took a small sniff and reveled at the fiery smoothness as it trickled down his throat. Hammond usually immaculately dapper, bore a black eye, as well as streaks of mud on his chin and jacket. His hair was unkempt, his bow tie askew, and his trousers appeared to be water-stained from the knee down. I shall assume sir is joking, Hammond said dryly. Moncrief was not aware that he was joking, but chose to take another sip of brandy rather than answer. I see sir has had time to change by himself, Hammond said. What time is it? Moncrief asked. His head still felt somewhat battered. Hammond made a show of retrieving his fob watch. Five after nine, sir. I appear to have missed dinner then. No, sir, you ate at seven after your guest arrived. Hammond was always so po-faced that Moncrief was obliged to take the answer at face value. I think I shall rest a while, he said. I'm feeling rather untoward. Indeed, sir. Hammond took the empty glass and left, closing the door silently. Moncrief lay back on the bed for several minutes until shock was gradually pushed aside by exultation. I actually moved through time. He stood and paced the room, fob watch in each hand. 
That means he tailed off, sat on the sandalwood writing desk. That means I'm a genius. He stared out into the dark. But does that mean that I miss dinner or not? He pulled a notepad and pencil from his jacket's inner pocket, wrote down, 4pm, activate machine, 7pm, dinner with guest, 9pm, brandy and rose room. All this presumably meant that he would return to the start and later on receive a guest for dinner. It also meant he was a genius, though he had not expected to move in space as well as time. Why the rose room? He wrote that down too. Perhaps this room had some peculiar chronological properties. His head felt much clearer by this time, and he felt able to stand without feeling dizzy. He opened the door, clicked off the switch, and left the room in darkness. Two floors down, the grandfather clock in the grand entrance hall read half past nine. Moncrief smiled in satisfaction. There he is! He whirled round at the sharp cry from behind, his head whirling rather more than expected. Two men, in rough woolen suits and ill-fitting bowler hats, stood at the far end of the hallway where they had emerged from the drawing room. Who the devil are you? Moncrief demanded. You know exactly who we are and what we want, the taller of the two men said. His lean face looked mean, his hair overly long and greasy, where it could have been seen around the rim of his hat. Hammond! Your butler's had enough already, the shorter, red-faced man said. So you blacked his eye. Both men took a step forward. Are you going to hand it over? Red-faced asked. Moncrief turned and ran, down the rear corridor to the door that accessed the cellar. Two sets of footsteps raced after him. He raced down the stairs and came up short against the solid oak door of his workshop. He rattled and banged, but there was no way through. The two intruders came to a halt halfway down the stairs. No way out, eh? Red-faced said. Careful, the other warned. He's a slippery one. They advanced slowly. Moncrief raised his fists in his best pugilist stance. The two men looked at each other and jumped him simultaneously. He was slammed back against the door and they swiftly pinned his arms to his side. No more running, Greasy Hare said. They pulled him painfully back up the stone steps to the grand hall and across to the library. Now see here, Moncrief said as they pushed him into one of the high back chairs alongside his desk. This is just not on. No it isn't, now shut up. Greasy Hare cuffed him around the face. The boss will be back soon. They stood in silence, a hand on each of his shoulders. The mantelpiece clock ticked the minutes away while Moncrief considered his options. Being held captive in his own library was intolerable. At last, he decided it was time to act. There was no sign of Hammond, so it was up to Moncrief to get out of his predicament by himself. He reached out and grasped hold of Thwaites' almanac of clocks, an unusually hefty volume that somebody had left on the desk, and swung it with all his might into the stomach of Redface. The man's face went even redder as he doubled over with a grunt. Moncrief shrugged from Greasy Hare's grasp and bolted for the door, slamming it behind him. He took the stairs two at a time up one floor and to the far end of the corridor where the French door opened onto a balcony. He stepped out into the cold darkness and closed the doors quickly, hopefully before his pursuers had seen which way he went. From here, he could climb down the trellis below and run to fetch help while they thought he was still within the house. It was just on ten o'clock, but surely the police would still respond despite the late hour. At first he thought it was the wind keening through the trellis, but then he realised the sound came from his waistcoat pocket. He pulled out the chronometer fob watch which buzzed and hummed. In the light from the hallway, he could see the hand wavering wildly back and forth. It halted on minus five and a hideously bright light assaulted him again. It seemed he was going back 
to five o'clock. Ten p.m. The blindingly bright light was especially bad after a whole bottle of wine. Moncrief slid onto his face on the soft carpet and wished for bed. After a few moments, he glanced up in alarm, suddenly aware that the last time he had been approaching ten o'clock, he was running through the house from two thugs who had done for Hammond. Where was the poor valet? Where were the intruders? It took Moncrief a minute to work out where he was. The morning room. He crept unsteadily into the grand hall and tried to remember back to what had happened leading up to ten o'clock. The two thugs would be up on the first landing. There was a knock from the cloakroom. He opened the door to find Hammond looking dazed. He almost fell against Moncrief. Hammond, thank goodness. The fiends are upstairs. There was a tinkle of glass from the drawing room, the door of which stood open across the hall. Or maybe over there. Quick, the basement. The two men ran haphazardly across the great hall to the rear corridor and down the stairs from the basement workshop. Footsteps pursued them, and a call of, Down here, men! Moncrief fumbled the spare key from his pocket, slid it into the lock. I really was hoping we could do this pleasantly, Sir Alec said, appearing at the top of the steps. Hammond, Moncrief said resolutely. We should have fetched the police while we had the chance. If only there was some way to communicate across long distances, eh? Sir Alec said, descending the steps slowly. Give me the diamond, Rupert. That is what it's for. I need it, Alec. You can't have it. More footsteps at the top of the stairs. How did he get down there? The two intruders trotted down the stairs. Grab him, Sir Alec said. Moncrief turned the lock and virtually fell through the door with Hammond right behind. He slammed it closed and Hammond braced his heavy shoulders at the other side. Moncrief struggled to focus through a wine-induced blur, pushed the key home again. The door barged partly open, knocking him off balance. He threw himself against it again and turned the key as it slammed home. He bent over, leaned on his knees, head pounding in time with the thuds in the door. Rupert! The muffled, angry voice of an angry Sir Alec. I presume, sir, that the diamond is secured with us down here. Moncrief nodded at his valley, staggered to his workbench stool. Hammond leaned up against the door and cupped his hands. Please see yourself out, gentlemen. We shan't be up for some time. The thudding stopped. Rupert, Alec called. This project is important to a lot of people. I could have the army here to appropriate the diamond. Alec, if you had official backing, you wouldn't be trying to break in. Silence for several minutes. Loud thuds and cursing, followed by threats from Sir Alec's two associates. They kept this up for quite some time. A rattle of the lock. There's no other spare key, is there? Moncrief whispered. None that I'm aware of, sir. Hammond picked up a large spanner. The key wiggled in the lock. Moncrief took a firm grip on it. His fingers turned red, then white, as he struggled to keep the tight grip while somebody on the other side attempted to unlock the door. What time is it? Moncrief gasped. Uh, half past ten, sir, Hammond said, glancing at the carriage clock on the workbench. Drat! Half an hour to go. Until what, sir? Until... Moncrief suddenly realised he was back in the basement. He was back in control of his equipment. Hammond, hold the key. They swapped position. Moncrief altered the carriage clock's additional finger to 10.35 and set the corresponding fob watch to 8. It was unreliable, but should definitely result in a forward jump. Hammond, he said, what happens next may well explain some of the odd things you've experienced today. Hammond battled with the key. It has been a somewhat unusual day, sir. When I tell you I want you to let them in, then I want you to stand well back out of the way. Are you planning to assault them with the spanner, sir? 
I do not think I could take all three of them on Hammond, besides I'd rather not risk damaging my machine. Indeed not, sir. In here, Moncrief said, indicating a brass cylinder with a hinged lid, is the Chaloner Diamond. Really, sir? His words came out in grunts. When the coast is clear, take it out and secure it in the strong box. I shall tell you what time to arrange for the police to be here. Would not immediately be ideal? No time to explain. He checked the carriage clock. 30 seconds. Now, Hammond. Hammond let go of the key. The lock snicked open and the door burst wide. Sir Alec and his two henchmen paused in the doorway, brought up short, it seemed, by the sight of the fabulously complex equipment humming and whirring behind Moncrief, who stood with fob watch in hand. It buzzed shrilly. 1.35am, Moncrief called, and recalling his rugby days at public school, launched a wide tackle that knocked all three men to the ground. He held onto them tightly. The bright light assaulted him, but, he guessed, it would affect them much worse. Hammond was a very efficient and imperturbable valley. He would doubtless raise an eyebrow at the disappearance of four men before his very eyes, but Moncrief had no doubt that the diamond would be secure and that the police would be present by the time the glare faded. Ah, that reminds me. Spring forward, fall backwards. Don't forget to set your clocks forward an hour. I, however, will be doing no such thing, as there are no clocks here in the gallery. I like to think that, within these walls, time stands still. But you'll have to ask me about that. Another evening. It's time for us to close. Time. There's time again. Hmm. Yes, do visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, tell your friends, because iTunes has a dreadful search algorithm. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in March of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. No clocks here. Not even a pocket watch. He's not going to find me that easily.